Hey, this is Nikki McCrary, lead pastor at Eastern Heights Baptist Church in Statesboro, Georgia, where we exist to be a life-changing church. So as you listen, I pray that you will be encouraged in your walk with Christ and that your life will be forever changed as you grow in your relationship with Him. We're going to be in Acts 11 today, and I want to welcome all of you who are watching online, those that are listening by podcast. We're glad that you're here to be part of us. Before we jump into our doctrinal series called Unstoppable through the book of Acts, I do want to uh, personally invite everyone that is not out of town or traveling or whatever to be here for our Christmas Eve service. We're going to have some great, great music. We're going to have um, carols, uh, not carols, we're going to have candles, right? Uh, we're not going to go caroling, that's tomorrow night, I think, right? Uh, but we're going to have candles, we're going to light candles. Uh, we're going to talk about the light in the night, and we're going to have communion. It's going to be a very, very sweet time together as we celebrate Jesus. Now, on Sunday morning, we've got a combined service that's going to take place in the sanctuary at 1030, right? We also are going to have an online opportunity beginning at 1030, and if 1030 is not a good time for you, you can watch it anytime after 1030. If you're opening gifts or cooking or whatever, then you can gather the family around the TV uh, on our Facebook page anytime beginning at 1030 or later to uh, get in on the Christmas story that morning. And what we'll be doing during the uh, online thing is we'll be uh, having some Christmas music, and then I'll be doing a brief devotion. So that'll be for those that are traveling or out of town or whatever, but we do have the in-person service at 1030 in the sanctuary. All right. So it's rare in the Bible that you have a long story that gets repeated, but that's exactly what we have in the book of Acts. So we're in part two of this three-part uh, doctrinal series, as I said earlier, called Unstoppable. And right now we're in chapters 9 through 15, where we're watching the local church move from being just a local movement to being a global movement, right? That's, uh, it, it started out as reaching one race. Now it is branching out to reach many different races. And a key turning point in this story is the Cornelius event that we looked at and studied last Sunday in chapter 10, right? We saw last week two conversions. The first one was the conversion of Cornelius, who the Bible says was a God-fearing, honorable man who prayed God, to God every day. He gave money to the poor. But his conversion taught us something. It taught us that we're not saved by our own goodness, but by the goodness of God, who offers to us, in the person of Jesus Christ, the gift of forgiveness. And we also saw, though, the conversion of Peter, right? Remember, Cornelius lived in Caesarea, in the same town that Philip did. And so God could have chosen to send the angel to tell Cornelius, or he could have told Cornelius to go across the street and let Philip tell him, because Philip had been preaching, and he'd been leading all kinds of people to Jesus. But that's not what he did. He chose to bring in Peter from 30 miles away because God wanted to do a work in Peter while he was doing a work through Peter. And so through this series of events, we've learned that God doesn't show favoritism, but that God's plan to reach mankind was going to be unstoppable. And so we come to chapter 11, and we just had this long story that the whole chapter is about, uh, chapter 10, about Cornelius. And in chapter 11, Luke spends the first half of it retelling the story of Cornelius all over again, because there's one more conversion 
that needs to take place, and it's the conversion of the church. And that's today's message, is the unstoppable church. Look at it with me, chapter 11, verse 1. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Now, it's amazing how fast the grapevine works, isn't it? Especially when it's something that's controversial. I mean, all Peter did was he ate one ham sandwich, right? And all of a sudden, it's all over social media what had gone on. And so when he shows up back in Jerusalem, all these Jewish Christians, they're criticizing the man who preached the first gospel message and thousands of people came to know Jesus. I mean, Peter was one of Jesus' closest and most trusted friends, and they're criticizing him. And the Bible doesn't say that all the other apostles jumped in to help criticize, but it also says they didn't jump in to stop it either. Because, see, this was bigger than the apostles. It was a big deal what was going on. And can I just say here that over the years, we've had big deals go on here at Eastern Heights, right? And I'm thankful that we've had men and women who had the courage along that way to take a stand and challenge the traditions and the mindsets that would have kept Eastern Heights from moving forward. And I'm proud to say that we've got people, men and women, still here today that at great risk to your own reputation, you will take a stand now and you will make statements that keep us moving forward for the sake of God's unstoppable mission. And see, Peter did exactly that. He didn't respond to the criticism with a rant. He responded with a history lesson, right? He retells the Cornelius story all over again. You can go read it in the first half of chapter 11. We don't have time to do that. But he makes it very clear that this is not his own doing. This is all by the divine direction of God. Matter of fact, he gives God credit 10 times in chapter 11 alone. For doing all this. He says, I, I'm not the one that sent the angel, you know, to come give me a vi to, you know, come give me a vision. He says, I'm not the one who asked for this vision to begin with. I was just hungry, trying to take a nap, and God comes and gives me this vision not only once, but he gives it to me three times. I mean, come on. This was a God thing. I'm not the one who sent the Holy Spirit to those Gentiles over there, got all this ruckus started up. I was just preaching a sermon. God's the one that interrupted it and gave them all the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't make it a point to point out how good a person Cornelius is. Right? He's, I know there's a lot of bad Gentiles out there, but you know there's a few good ones too. It wasn't about Cornelius. Right? The issue isn't the character of Cornelius. The issue is the agenda of God. But I think the church in Jerusalem already knew that. Let's look at it. Later on in this chapter, Luke goes on, and he goes back to a time where he refers to the stoning of Stephen, verse 19. He says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death, because see, that was several years before this story of Cornelius. They were scattered and traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, and here it comes, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. This had never happened before, folks. We take it for granted, but this had never happened. Verse 21, the power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed 
and turned to the Lord. See, Cornelius wasn't the first Gentile to get saved and baptized. It had been going on for several years now. So the Cornelius controversy that they're criticizing Peter so much for, it's not about salvation. That wasn't the issue. The issue was about reconciliation. And that's a lot different. Notice again back in verse 3 what they were criticizing Peter for doing. It wasn't about, hey, Peter, you've been out there giving the gospel out to a bunch of Gentiles. Hey, Peter, you've been out baptizing Gentiles. That wasn't what they criticized him for. They said that you entered the home of Gentiles and you even ate with them. That's what you did. So this wasn't about who could come to the baptistry. It was who could come and find a seat at the table. And again, big difference. You know, studying for this kind of took me back to my younger years when I was first beginning ministry. And so i got to kind of give you some background here. I grew up in a city church. All right, that tells you one thing. I grew up in a city church in Alabama. That tells you another thing. I grew up in a city church in Alabama in the 60s and the 70s. That tells you a lot of stuff. Okay? Too much stuff, maybe. And so, what I grew up in in church, if you haven't figured it out yet, is I grew up in an all-white church. And I didn't think much about it. I mean, I was a young boy. And look, I had white friends, and I had black friends. But you know what? We all understood, I go to my church... And you go to your church, right? That's the way we did it. Well, then God rocked my world kind of like with Peter's when he sent me to seminary. Okay? He sent me to seminary out in Fort Worth, Dallas, Texas area. And he sent Amanda and I to live in a town 50 miles west of there called Mineral Wells. And if you've never heard about it, it's a, it's a bunch of oil riggers that, uh, that got together, and they were just a bunch of blue-collar. It was a very, very poor town. So to top everything else off, God put me out there in the, a church that was in the poorest part of town to minister to people that I never imagined I would ever minister to growing up in the city church, right? Now, I didn't have a problem with ministering to them. I just wasn't quite ready for it. You know what I'm talking about? I wasn't ready to go to the grocery store in Texas, okay? It was weird, man. I felt like I was on foreign missions, you know? And so my first few weeks there, though, we started playing two-hand touch football in the backyard of the church. It had a huge field back there. And it didn't take many games before the word got out to the neighborhood that we were playing football. So within a short amount of time, we had about 25 kids that were out there playing football. When I say kids, all right, we had white kids, we had black kids, we had Hispanic kids, and may I just say it was the first time it dawned upon me that my Two years of very, very hard work in high school in the subject of Latin was absolutely useless. Okay? I mean to tell you, it, it was, I'm telling you, I felt like a missionary in a foreign land. And then you put together all these ethnic groups that were living together, marrying each other, some of them just living together, and they were having children. It, it was quite the mixture of ethnic groups that was coming to play football. But you know what? They all had two needs. They needed something to do with their free time, and they needed to know Jesus. Right? And I'd like to say I led all 25 to Jesus, but I didn't. 
But I was able to lead some of them to Jesus. There was this one young man in particular that was very sincere about his decision to receive Christ. And he wanted to be baptized. Right? And he was African American. And so on the day of his baptism, I'm standing there in the baptistry. When one of the older women in the church said it loud enough for all those around her to hear it, because it wasn't a big church, she said, who brought that trash into my church? And my sweet wife, at the courageous age of 18 at that time, leaned forward and said, your grandson did. And it was true. Her grandson had invited this African-American guy, his friend, to come and play football in the afternoon. He'd also invited him to hear about Jesus. And then he invited him to accept Jesus. And he did. So, folks, I mean, how do you explain a relationship with God and the church that excludes anyone who is seeking to know Jesus? It, it, It just doesn't make sense, does it? So why... Would God include this story not only once in the Bible, but he repeated it a second time? You know what I think? I think it's because we still got the same problem in our churches today. The salvation we find in Jesus is one of reconciliation. It's not only vertical, folks. It's horizontal with our relationships with other people. And when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just go there to make us right with him. He went there to make us right with each other. And so a part of this conversion process for the church in Jerusalem would be understanding, if you're taking notes, write this down, that true discipleship means unstoppable fellowship. That Jesus is not just building a church where anyone can enter the water. He's building a church where everyone can come to the table. Because the church is God's answer, and that's to do a work through Jesus in us who understand that the cross doesn't just go up, it goes out. Right? Paul says to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2, he says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. And isn't this the season that we're talking about peace on earth and goodwill toward men and others? Sure. Well, how did he do it? He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. See, the cross isn't just about salvation, folks. It's about reconciliation. And it comes right here in verse 16. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And when he did that, our hostility toward each other was put to death. Now, was it? See, that's what the New Testament refers all the way through is the mystery. This plan of God. This plan of God was a revolutionary idea, folks. It was the most radical idea that ever had come along. That Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, men and women, could all sit at the same table. You know, the book of Revelation says that God is going to bring all the nations together, every tongue, every tribe, 
every ethnic group, every nationality. We're all going to be up there together. So a lot of people said, well, I'll start practicing a little bit down here on earth. So we'll know how to act when we get there. But you know what? I think as long as we're here on this earth, that racial and cultural bias, it's just not going to be erased. But I think one thing that we can do as Christians is we can learn how to let those differences be embraced. Can't erase them, but we can embrace our differences. At least those of us united in Christ should be able to. You know the most beautiful thing that could happen? Is if the church here on earth could become a beautiful preview of what heaven looks like. You ever thought of that? That the church would be a preview of what heaven looked like. <laughs> oh, Lord. Right? Let's make it different. See, a bunch of Gentiles got saved, verse 21. Let's see what happens, verse 22. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. You get up there and you find out what's going on up at that church. Verse 23, when he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. See, they weren't Jews and Gentiles then. They weren't even Gentiles. They were believers. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, so he wasn't a nut job. And many people were brought to the Lord. You see, the church at Antioch, they were the first church to cross the racial barrier. And so when you did a Google search back then, only one result popped up about churches in Antioch. Because they weren't churches on every corner like they are here, right? There was only one church. And so this Great number of Gentiles that get saved in verse 21, and then a few verses later, a whole bunch more get saved. So all of a sudden, Baptism Sunday has moved to Baptism Monday, and Baptism Tuesday, and Baptism Wednesday, because all these people are believing and getting saved. So, see, the church was finally giving the world something that it had never seen before, which was the plan of God from the very beginning. So if you're taking notes, write this down. People are one to Christ, W-O-N, when disciples are one, O-N-E, in Christ. People are one to Christ when disciples are one in Christ. See, God's plan of unstoppable salvation can only be accomplished through unstoppable reconciliation, through all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. If you knew that you were absolutely going to die tomorrow, what would you pray about today. I would think it'd be a pretty important prayer, wouldn't you? Let's look at what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 23. Jesus prayed to God the Father, says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus is saying the world will recognize his identity when they recognize our unity, folks, and not until then. So if we're going to wear his name, we cannot stop short of that prayer that Jesus himself prayed. It's no coincidence that in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we find these words. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. You say, we've read that a hundred times, right? But you ever think about why? Now we know. 
They were different. They were doing things differently. So I figure here you're either nodding off or you're nodding in agreement, okay? Hopefully it's the latter, all right? But here, here, here's where we're at in the Word of God. God is saying it's not enough for you to have the mindset, well, at least I'm not adding to the problem out there, okay? God's saying that's not enough. God is saying somebody's got to start making it better, and it's got to be us, his followers, and it's got to be right now. The world is messed up, and it needs change right now. So I want to give you three ways that you can make it better. Number one, listen to someone else's story. And this comes right out of the scriptures here. Listen to someone's story. That's what Peter did. Change happened because Peter listened to Cornelius in chapter 10. Change continued because the church listened to Peter's story in chapter 11. See, the problem today is that we're not doing enough listening and we're doing way too much scrolling. Okay? And we're making decisions about how we feel about somebody or how we feel about something or what we believe about something according to what's on the latest post out there somewhere instead of the truth of God's Word. And look, if you're a scroller, I get it. I'm not one, but I get it. All right? If you're a scroller, that's fine. Just make sure you scroll past all the junk and get to the good stuff because there's some good stuff out there, man. Like this story that went viral. Go ahead and put that next picture up there. A few years back, some Florida State football players. Yes, they do have some good ones over there at Florida State. Um, for those of you, we've got a few Florida State fans in here. But uh, they went to eat lunch with some of the kids at the elementary school, and a player then that was very popular was named Travis Rudolph. And you notice this young man sitting by himself at the lunch table, so he went over there to sit with him because he didn't know that Bo Pesky ate by himself every single day because of his autism. And so Travis, when he sat down over there, he realized things were a little different, and so he didn't say a whole lot, but he just sat there and he ate his lunch. And so somebody snapped a picture of this, sent it to the mom, and of course it went viral. Well, guess what? Bo Pesky became one of the most liked kids in the entire school. You know why? Because it's amazing what a seat at a table will do for a person. And a component of carrying one another's burdens like Jesus tells us that we need to do as the body of Christ is listening to their story and then giving legitimacy to it, folks. Now, not long ago, I was copied on a wonderful email, which is not always the case. Just want you to know, okay? But I got copied on this email from one of our members that serves on the Second Saturday Food Pantry. And her testimony was about how life-changing it had been to serve out here with the food pantry and to listen to people's stories as they either waited in line to get their bag of groceries or to drive through and get their bag. And so they began to share their stories, and this person began to ask for what they could pray with them about, right? And so out of that day came a list of 30 names with multiple needs under each one. But this person sent out to all the people in the food pantry ministry this list and their names and the needs and asked us to pray for one of those people each day for 30 days. 30 people, 30 days, right? And can I just tell you that the list, when I started reading it, just broke my heart. There were physical needs, there were emotional needs, there were relational needs, financial needs, there were spiritual needs, all kinds of needs out there. And can I just tell you, 
for those people to know that someone cared enough to listen to their story and to legitimize their needs. It's life-changing for some of those people. And I know it's life-changing for one of our workers and many more that's been a part of this process. So question today is this. This week, whose story do you need to listen to? And then make sure your radar is up looking for it. It'll be there. Second thing you can do to make things better is lead with grace instead of judgment. How much stronger would our churches be if we showed up for our churches looking for what's right instead of what's wrong? Thank you. I mean, for real. No wonder people don't want to come to church. This was too much that, and that wasn't enough of this. We need to start looking for what God is doing in people that is good instead of looking for what's wrong in them. But you know what? It's hard to do that in our culture, isn't it? George W. Bush said a lot of good things, but one thing he said that applies today is this. He said, too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. And didn't somebody else say that the road to hell was paved with good intentions? But see, that's why we're disciples. And that's where the word discipline comes from. It's the same root word. Disciples are to be disciplined in the things, in the areas of life that just don't come easy. And this is one of them, folks. And then we're supposed to live and act differently. So the next time you meet a Cornelius, be a Barnabas. Be an encourager. But then, here's the hardest step. And that's look for ways to make a statement. Look for ways to make a statement. My oldest grandson, Levi, as you know, I've told you several times, he, he not only loves baseball, but he's become quite the historian about baseball. Not just about the current players and all their stats. He can tell you a lot of those things. But he's also gotten very interested in the history of baseball and all these older players that have come before things are today, right? And if any of you know anything about baseball, you'll know that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball in 1947. But it wasn't easy. Every park he would go to, they would hurl out all these racial slurs. And they would make all these negative comments and they would throw out all these insults. Even at his own home field in Brooklyn, this would happen. And so one day, Jackie Robinson, he made an error. And when he did, the stadium, at his home stadium, he was on his home field when this happened, his own people began to jeer at him. They began to hurl those insults and all those negative comments and all those insults. And so something very unusual happened then. Throw up that next picture. A man by the name of Pee Wee Reese, who was one of their most loved players at that time. He dropped his glove down on the ground. He played shortstop. And he walked over to where Jackie was with his head hanging down from all the stuff he was hearing. And the fact that he had made an error. And Pee Wee Reese went up and he put his arm around Jackie. And he stood there with his arm around him and he looked into the, uh, the stadium and he looked at every single person that was yapping until the stadium was completely 
silent. And Jackie would go on later to say, you know what? That arm saved my career. That one gesture where Pee Wee Reese took a stand. And it's the kind of stand that we need more of instead of some of these that we've been seeing lately. You see, Pee Wee knew what he was doing. Peter knew what he was doing. Barnabas knew what he was doing. They all knew what they were doing when they took their stand and they made their statement. They knew that they were doing something that would never, ever be the same again. See, reconciliation that advocates for other people most often is going to need words, it's going to need actions, but it's always, always going to involve risk and sacrifice. So let me give you an example right out of the Bible. At the end of chapter 11, the prophets say, hey, the, there's a famine that's coming to the entire Roman Empire, right? So let's look at how the church at Antioch responded to the news there's going to be a famine, verse 29. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. Think about the significance of that. Most people be going, we need to wait and see how bad it's going to get before we start giving our stuff away. But they knew how bad it already was in Jerusalem because people already had proclaimed the Messiah, Jesus Christ, there. And because of that, they had already lost their jobs. They had already been kicked out of the synagogue. The widows had already been removed from the role of help, right? Remember, we talked about all that. So they knew it was bad in Jerusalem. Then, verse 30, they said, Let's help them. So they did, this they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take it to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So they were making this intentional statement. And folks, when that relief showed up, it broke down barriers that a thousand sermons can't touch. Trust me. You see, when we're right with God, we don't just stop at doing wrong to people. We look for ways to do right by them. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what he did intentionally. When he made statements concerning how children, children's lives matter in a culture that said they didn't. How that women's lives mattered in a culture that said it didn't. How that Samaritan lives matter in a culture that said they didn't. How that lepers' lives mattered in a culture that said different. In coming to save all of the world, Jesus made it clear there's times when Parts of the world need a voice at that time to speak for them. So here's the takeaway for today. It's doubtful that you alone are going to change the whole world. Let's just be honest. But it is highly probable you could change someone's life by asking God to show you what you could leverage with what God's given you, the place He's put you at in your life, the people that are around you, the platform that you have that God has blessed you with, whatever that is, to number one, to listen to the stories of the people around you, to show grace instead of judgment, and then to use your influence to make a statement that will lead people and point people to Jesus Christ. It's going to require risk and sacrifice on your part, but it's going to be life-changing for the person that you're going to do it for. You see, I want to leave a better world for my children and my grandchildren than what they have right now. And then one day after I'm long gone, 
I want my children and grandchildren to say, you know, the world's a better place because of what the Christians did today to make it that way. It's not going to happen by itself, folks. We've got to do the things that we've talked about. We've got to do those three things to make it better. So I hope that you will do just that in this season where we pray and we ask God for peace on earth. Would you join me in prayer? God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are open to realizing that change begins with me. It begins with us here at Eastern Heights. Give us the courage that's required to be life-changing and to be an unstoppable church for our community and our world. The world that you sent your son Jesus to be born into and the world that he so radically changed. God, make us the unstoppable church that you've called us to be. And all God's people said, amen. If we don't see you at the Christmas Eve service, I hope that if you're traveling, you'll be safe and that you all have a very Merry Christmas. That's how it stands we sing together. We hope you were encouraged by this message today. If you would like more details on our church, please visit us at ehbcstatesboro.org.